Welcome to episode two of the Spinoza Triad. Is or was Donald Trump leading a crusade against an international conspiracy of paedophilic, Marxist, Leninist, child smuggling wardrobe salesmen? Were the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers in New York orchestrated by the American government themselves? Were the moon landings fabricated in a Hollywood studio? The answer to these questions is no, obviously not. That would be stupid to believe such things and downright insane. So why do a surprisingly large number of people believe such absurd ideas, given the overwhelming ease with which one can access evidence to show the contrary? Why in this time of hitherto unachieved levels of education do people believe mad things? Are they simply misinformed? Is the proportion of a population simply not paying proper attention? Are they indeed insane? Or to put it another way, one scotch egg short of a packed lunch? Are they victims of an echo chamber, internet and fake news? Is it simply that we have failed to teach sufficiently sophisticated evaluative skills, given our children the capacity and adults thereafter the capacity for proper evidential training? Or is the answer to be found in the darker peripheral vision of the human psyche? As every week the Spinoza Triad will conduct an unscripted discussion using the guidance of a particular theorist or philosopher. This week, who better to choose when delving into the dark recesses of the human psyche than Carl Gustav Jung. He lived from 1875 to 1961 and has left a legacy of, that has influenced popular culture, literature, our understanding of our own culture, and of course, therapeutic analytical psychiatry. I hope you enjoy it. The task was to think about Jungian psychoanalysis, analytical psychology, and conspiracy theory. Which I struggled with. I can tell you why I've made that connection. Well, John, what, what did you think of Jung first and Dan? Because I'll be interested to know what you both think. Because John, what did you think of him? Well, I chart process of my thinking about him. So Jung, the collective consciousness wasn't strange, interconnected, met metaphysical uh, world of uh, connected minds. You know, I knew that essentially what collective consciousness was was a, a universal sense, universally true ways of which human beings think and see and structure the world that we all share because we're all human beings. Not unsurprisingly, well, because we kind of look similar, we're also going to think similarly. That's close yeah. to what collective consciousness is. So before I read about the, this week, I sort of appreciate that's true. And I think that's a very useful way of looking at the world. Then I thought, I know, I know the word archetype, are again, different ways of, of projecting our own conscious understanding of ourselves into the world. So, th so in this sense, our minds provide a structure which structures the world. We aren't born into the world uh, with a tabula rasa, a blank mind. We have, from the collective unconscious, a template, uh, a structure of human cognition, which provides us with a means of mapping through language and symbols, through, sorry, through a language of symbols, uh, which are the archetypes, a means by which we can understand the world we encounter and provide us with that template. Is his point, is, is his point that it's, it's unconscious, that it's an unconscious structure, that you're not conscious of it and it formulates your, what you can know. I mean, I listen to Jordan Peterson, when I mean, he talks about substructures, like a structure, a substructure, is something where the, the mother, a mother complex was like, it was a sort of, almost like a set of coordinates. You come to understand what 
what the concept of mother is and then it's collective insofar as it has its own history like there's a history of um, a mythological dimension to what we mean by mother and these have there are sets of stories or yeah narratives of which to understand this by yes absolutely i agree provide the template the structural template for that mythologizing function which creates the map by which we understand the world we do i think have to be careful not to fall into a kind of reductionism or determinism in other words there isn't a form of mother a kind of platonic form of mother which we should adhere to on the other hand it's also shouldn't be re reduced down to one form of mother the archetypal mother isn't the way it should be it's on the other hand a complex symbolism which we will construct culture by culture and history by history i thought it's, he's almost quite a modern thinker because if you change some of the language and you think in evolutionary biology or, or neuroscience he's basically saying that the unconscious is, is it's rich and deep and it's largely hereditary well it's hereditary and it's genetic if you like absolutely richard i completely agree i think that that is one of the or is the great and particularly brilliant insight of jungian analysis this bit of human experience, the Industrial Revolution about 200 years old, living in cities about 10,000 years old, hundreds of thousands of years of human existence prior to that, out of which our ways, our frames of reference, our ways of thinking, our brains were shaped to deal with that world and not this one. It's that idea that all human beings, we all share a common reservoir of cognitive structuring that we've inherited. And I think genetic, understanding of genetics and particularly epigenetics, the relationship between genetics and the environment has, has be become, has given us a real brilliant insight into this. I doubt, and I'm sure it's not true, that complex ar um, archetypal images and symbols can be directly inherited, but I think we can have a transmission of the landscape in which those archetypes can be formulated commonly across mankind for instance the the great arch, you know the common archetype of the hero it's oddly true how the representation of heroes in mythology in films in popular culture and, and in our imagination are similar across time and across culture it's archetype of a hero that, uh, that overcomes himself you know defeats the dragon it's really everywhere isn't it from beowulf uh, it's in the bible it, i mean that's rocky four isn't it i mean any of the rocky stories you know they were on tv the other night again and it was this, this is just the, the hero's journey again you know, he's got the trickster, he's got people trying to take him away from the path and he has something he has to overcome. And then it's really himself that he has to become the best version of him. It seems that these, these Jungian archetypes are, are kind of everywhere. For instance, the heroes have similar sort of characteristics. The hero is possessed of some kind of special power, even if that special power, if it's not warrior skills or ability to fly or, or look through walls, it's the ability to see things that other people don't quite get. Even if it's just the, the only power they've got is an awareness of something that other people can't see or, or refuse to see. That and that in turn makes them an outsider, it separates them, it makes them sad, it makes them go off. They operate on some, some place beyond where other people go, go on, they go on quests, they're often assisted. And so you get this sort of narrative, common narratives of hero, common features of hero. One of the things I used to do in my old comms lessons was ask students, how do heroes stand? And I would adopt a position where my, my shoulders would be sort of hunched forward and I'd fiddle with my fingers and that wouldn't be heroic. But if I sort of threw my head back and looked somewhere 
on the horizon in the middle distance. That was how heroes stood. How do we know that? I mean, learned it environmentally or did we inherit it genetically or something, something between the two. And I think that's because the hero, we understand what kind of landscape that hero operates on, operates on a boundary. Maybe it's the coast, maybe it's the edge of things, maybe it's these, maybe that, that bit of the city the rest of us won't go into. I, and that's why I think boundary zones, the great boundary zone, the great pattern boundary zone is life and death itself. And that's represented in the world, our understanding of the importance of, say, of, of seas and edges, of cliff faces, of people who are prepared to step into the void or step off into the void. People who do, who go to places we wouldn't want to go. People will be married on beaches. People will be, um, or take their holidays walking along cliff edges. People feel edge places, boundaries, even doorways to houses, boundaries to inside and outside, after gardens. Gardens are where we're buried, gardens are where we're married, gardens around churches, gardens around our houses, and gardens, after all, are a boundary between domestic world, the domestic interior world, and the great wild world of nature. Gardens operate as a boundary on that. And I think it's on those boundary patterns that heroes operate. And not unsurprisingly, whether it's the wandering knight or the samurai or the lone gunman of the of of Santa Fe, the the hero or Iron Man, the hero has a curious similarity. Making the connection with conspiracy theory. So if people have a suspicion that the world isn't the way it appears, yeah. That, that's actually quite a sensible way to behave for much of human existence. In other words, to be to be somewhat suspicious of the stranger be somewhat suspicious of what they say, to not take things at face value, is actually a very useful survival guide. So no wonder that we have a psychological inclination to doubt and suspect things. And that's, that's, that, that, that doesn't take you all the way to conspiracy theories, but it takes you to a way of thinking about the world which actually could be both quite useful and quite dangerous. I, I think that's Jung's strong point. That's what I like about psychoanalysis, is the recognition of dark forces <laughs> but and and they're not always dark you know they can be quite positive as well can't they some sort of drives and impulses but the way i understood him is that he was it was a move beyond freud and by that you know freud's interested in sort of sex drives uh, and the id is it, it, it just seems more chaotic whereas jung from my understanding of this he, he it's he really does look into the the unconscious from a variety of, like you say, with different stories, narratives, histories, myths, and, and almost builds up a, a kind of architecture of, of, of an unconscious. And, and it has a more, it's, it's far more sophisticated than, than Freud's, isn't it, I think? Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things that's very different, as you say, the id for Freud is a chaotic a series of base instincts, barely controllable sort of volcano of, of lust and desire that you sit on top of. Whereas for, for uh, Jung, there's this thing, this archetypal shadow. And yeah. shadow, shadow is that bit you don't wish to acknowledge in yourself. Dark, yeah. Quite controversially in a way, because Jordan Peterson gets in trouble with many people because he says, you know, you also need to embrace this. That can mean yeah. for men, embrace the violent side for your person. In other words, violence, yeah. aggression can be good and in fact necessary. And that shadow landscape within people's psyche gives rise to, well, the anti-hero, the kind of dirty Harry figure, the Bruce Willis figure in all those Bruce Willis films, superhero who has to be separate from uh, society because of that darker 
self-destructive or even destructive side to their personality, that the hero is flawed and that the flaws are his strength and his separation and his weakness is the format, is the landscape within which the anti-hero archetype can exist. On the other hand, violence, aggression you know, can be deeply unpleasant and terrifying, and especially in yourself. So how, how do you deal with the shadow archetype within your own self, the, the unknown bit of yourself? You know, having a persona, the mask you put on, is actually very, very useful in the world. We don't really want everyone to see inside our own heads, God forbid. We need a level of deceit. Even the idea of good manners is deceitful, isn't it? It's not really what you're actually thinking perhaps when you open the door for someone and say please and thank you. You're not being oh, sincere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we want to be able to act and pretend and that yeah. actually is necessary for us to function. So that's it. So from Freud, he takes the idea that you're not, you're not the master of your own house. You don't entirely understand what's in your head. On the other hand, that for, for Jung, that can be quite useful or destructive depending on how you how you apply, you know, how you understand it, apply it. How can it be useful if you if you don't know what it is and you can't pin it down? Well, I'm, I'm guessing that Jungian psychoanalysis helps you to find out that, you know, by acknowledging that there is this within you, it becomes useful. I had this, I read it a few years ago, actually, on holidays, uh, it, uh, owning your own shadow. Understanding the dark side of the psyche. Robert A. Johnson is, is pretty good, but it, again, it's a bit it's a bit vague. They, they talk a lot about shadow work, don't they? So the, the, what you're describing there, John, is where you would try and I think it's like recognizing that that you things can go quite bad for you, and you could you I think you are capable of doing quite bad things. I suppose part of that kind of shadow well, work. Well, I'm, I'm guessing uh, that being that coaching or training people in mixed martial arts or boxing or anything of that kind gives, gives you an insight into how to utilize and control shadow. I mean, if, if Mike Tyson bites someone's ear off or whatever he tried to do, yeah. he's clearly not entirely in control yeah. of his shadow, is he? You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of aggression that he doesn't fully understand. definitely needed some shadow work around that period. I'd say so. Mm. <laughs> so it, to do with a bit it, of Jungian yeah. analysis there. <laughs> Could it be that um, we symbolise the things we want to do so we can almost imagine dark thoughts without actually living them through? Is that where he's going? That's a bit like Freud. Yeah. Does this, this shadow become a kind of symbol by which we learn to accept or avoid things? What yeah. I find interesting here is this relationship between Jung's shadow and Lacan's real. And <laughs> the difference is, is that you can come to know the shadow and your own shadow and you... Jung has various narratives for making, again, it's that relationship between order and chaos. For the Jungian, you can come to know the unconscious or the shadow through shadow work, and you, you, there are these various narratives and stories of which to know that which you don't know. You know, you kind of work through this. Mm. I feel like with the Lacanian sort of Zizek kind of model, that this real actually affects all that you can know, but you can never know it. It's at the edge of what is knowable, and, and that nothingness shapes everything you can know. A bit like an artist will use negative space, you know, negative pictures to draw up what, what they're trying to draw. Mm. So it's a bit like Freud, it's a renunciation of all that can be known through, let's say, like killing the primal father. So the primal whore killing the primal father. The primal father represents everything that is possible. But if everything was possible, 
society wouldn't exist. So we have yeah. a sense of uh, things being forbidden, being prohibited in order for us to, it's the prohibition that allows us to, you know, to interact socially. I think um, they both had this idea of killing the father, don't they? Like Lacan has the name of the father he talks about, doesn't he? And that's yeah. um, that, that sort of, it's authority, isn't it? And then for Jung, they, again, part of that, that idea of slaying the father in order to become. Uh, this kind of paradox that if, we, if we're forbidden to do things, we actually are able to create society. And at the moment, we've got a situation whereby prohibition is seen as, a, as if it's a bad thing. And uh, we've got excessive freedom and compulsion to enjoy, which is leading to a sense of alienation and, uh, and distance between not only events, but people. Yeah, Dan, if I can just pick up on that phrase you just used, the alienation from events. I think that's a, a wonderfully contemporary and topical idea, the view that people are live in worlds of complexity which they can barely understand. And that they, well, often it's said that we don't understand the economic forces, the global forces, and that people living in small towns in, in rural United States don't understand why the jobs kind of have vanished, or people don't understand why the climate might be changing. And, they, and if we place it in the, in the bigger psychoanalytical context of people not understanding themselves and not understanding their own minds in the post-God world, you know, I, don't, I doubt that incomprehension was anything other than universal in the human condition, since entropy is the natural order of the universe, things fall apart. But one once upon a time, as it were, if I can use that sort of a narrative idea, once upon a time in medieval times, at least, people might have had the consolation of a world order with God in his heaven and uh, the devil in, in his hell. And somewhere we were between the two and we understood the workings of the medieval universe. In this world, though, in the post-God world, how do we understand our position within the world? Well, we might attempt, if I can draw this back to conspiracy theories, to place ourselves as the hero, the narrative hero in that story, the one who perceives the truth that other people don't see. I also might place it within a world of, um, of chaos in the sense of, be of being alienated from it. So the thing I see is the fears I project on the world. Well, aren't we describing QAnon? I did think last night, if you look at the archetypes with you, one of the archetypes is the trickster. And it was uh, really the trickster being the thing that tries, tries to fool you or, or doesn't allow you to see it. He, he talks yeah. about sort of Native American cultures and then you see it explained in a few different ways. But this idea of that there is an archetypal structure of a trickster of something which is there to try and fool you or lead you to a, a different it's usually signified by a crafty animal like a coyote or this kind of thing the trickster is going to appear in christian idea through the devil who's also the great deceiver and in and in other religions there is a figure in hindu religion figure in, in ancient egyptian religion and also the gods themselves in the classical world are are deceivers and tricksters and they're always fooling people, turning into animals and fooling people or being vengeful and vindictive. I saw a little clip with Joseph Campbell saying that, you know, the trickster is always trying to over overthrow order. So, again, you've got this dualism between chaos and order. And the trickster is trying to, yeah, where order is being, you, you imagine sort of the imposition of various archetypes that give you sort of a young man, you know, the hero's journey. The trickster is to try and get rid of that. So I don't know if, if, if some, especially within politics, 
you see that. Absolutely, Richard. It's a, you know, a vivid characteristic of politics is the problem of discovering or finding or, or knowing the difference between the trickster and the hero. How is the devil represented? The devil is, always, is often represented as being rather looking a bit like a goat. He's horned, he's got got long features. Mm. You can see in all sorts of anti-Semitic literature in the Middle Ages, how Jews were portrayed as looking like the devil. And right the way, you bring that right the way down history, you know, confined in the Middle Ages, the slaughtering of Jewish people because of some rumor that some child had been killed, or the Eastern European belief that Jews used people's blood, children's blood, to, um, to leaven their bread mm-hmm. down to the, the mid 20th century. And you've got an international conspiracy of capitalist and communist Jews who are somehow uh, allied together to overthrow Germany or to undermine Western civilization. It's, it's insane yeah, to believe that as it is to believe in QAnon. That difficulty in telling the difference between pretense and reality, between good and evil forms the basis of drama from Shakespeare to the ancient Greeks to Game of Thrones, House of Cards. I mean, the, the, the trickster, the anti-hero, the hero, and the difficulty we have in finding out who they are and the differences between them and the overlapping similarities between them. Goodness me, that's the basis of most drama. And certainly it's a way we perceive the world and perceive politics. Uh, for some, of clear, clearly, the QAnon lunatics. Donald Trump is the is the hero, and for others, uh, he's a trickster. But yeah. I think in, in my twenties, John, I, I suffered from most of my mates were the trickster. That would I would try and tell Nicky I wasn't going to the pub, but they'd trick me into it. <laughs> Jungian Jungian ideas, Freudian ideas, Lacanian analysis can, is very useful in appreciating this this kind of material world of post-God world and what, what do you do in a world where those mysterious things you can't explain, the world is largely inexplicable to us, is still, is still frightening. The individual is capable of great good but evil and bad. Uh, the great mother is both the caring, loving earth mother but also the, the evil stepmother and the tyrannical, overbearing mother. The Ouroboros, again, that, that image that, that's first used to symbolise, I think it's just cre- creation or before creation, but it's both matter and spirit. I think that's quite—I don't want to use the word yin yang, but it kind of it kind <laughs> of not? is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, why I, not? yeah. We fall in into ourselves and our own privacy, so we don't want the outside world to interfere. We become less radical, less political, because all that is uh, something to do with something external to the individual so we've got kind of individualism on stilts at the moment but it's it's an individualism though without any form of responsibility isn't it you know this relationship between Nietzsche and Jung I know I mean Nietzsche talks about the death of God and really what then do human beings do when there's no authority like you see and Jung deals with that because rather than just Nietzsche would be something whereby, you know, you have this individualism, but there's a responsibility there to have your own, overcome yourself, to be the best version of yourself and confront your various values. And Jung provides, I think, some answer as to why that becomes more difficult. You're not just dealing with yourself, you're dealing with a collective unconscious which stems back forever. So it's it's not just an, an autonomous choice to do something. I think that's maybe Jung's strength. And if you're not careful with Jung, 
he it seems like he dangles this new religious promise, which I, I don't know if it's there. Lacan em- embraces that negativity, that real, that void or gap, uh, chaos, and Jung tries to explain it. Aren't we, I don't think I invented this idea, but aren't we human beings? The, R- run with it, John. The, 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 yeah, yeah, I don't think I invented yeah. this idea. I wish, I'm not going to claim <laughs> some brilliant insight here. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the pattern-seeking ape. I, don't, I forget who said that, but that's what we are. Unlike other creatures on this planet, but um, what makes us different is that we see patterns. We look into clouds and we see faces, but we also look into the chaotic world around us and start shaping it into species. Linnaeus looks at, looks at plants and animals and starts turning them into species and different connections. And we look at elements and we divide them into different elemental types. We look at human organization or we look at our own psychology. And we start shaping it into, into uh, archetypes. Isn't that what conspiracy theories are doing anyway? They're just going one step further than most. Absolutely. I think that's right. I think what the, what the conspiracy theory is doing is our innate tendency to look for patterns is both extraordinarily good. If we didn't do that, we couldn't organise the world around us. It would all just be chaotic. Mm-hmm. We couldn't even organise our own thoughts. Finding patterns is essential. And yet yeah. seeing patterns where they, where they don't exist or, seeing, or inventing them can become dangerous. I mean, it's the other side of the coin. But if, if I project onto the world my fears, that can become extraordinarily dangerous. You know, it's a bit like the, the two sides of a stereotype. Stereotype can be really useful. It's, it's a shorthand way of understanding people I haven't met. But also stereotypes can be extremely dangerous when they become racial stereotypes. Both extremes of, you know, looking for patterns in things can lead to a form of insanity. Well, when you were a child, did you never look at this patterned wallpaper or something and wonder if there were faces in it? Yeah. And then, and then at some point get frightened. I don't know. I don't know. That may that may just be me. Still, I still do it. <laughs> you're, you're kind of. It's fine. Your imagination can conjure a face out of the patterned wallpaper. The criticism of Jung that could you could have that it, that, which is why it's so embraced by advertisers and it's so embraced by management people and organisational theorists. You can see see lots of stuff online about about using uh, uh, recognizing archetypes as a means of kind of developing your organization and what kind of archetype are you and such like are you the wizard are you the helper are you the regular guy are you the assistant or whatever it is or the are you the magician and that and it, therefore it falls into a kind of rather simplistic form of self-help book dealing with aggression well then you recognize it that's i think why some aspects of jungian analysis can enter popular culture quite easily as, as freud has done actually i think um uh, what I like about this is, 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 again, it's we've looked at a few people now, haven't we, where it's this idea of knowing this is unknown has a collective character to it that all human beings experience. And like yeah. you said at the beginning, John, not on a metaphysical level, but just, just as something that everyone experiences. Yeah, because so, we're yeah. all human. Like, it's probably yeah. true, it's almost certainly true, that when we look at this colour red, I can't know whether you're seeing red the way I see red, but I know yeah. we all agree that that thing, that whatever that is, that uh, electromagnetic stimulus... Uh, called light, yeah. registers red in all three of us. So we, we've agreed that that is red, even though I can't be certain that that's what you see. But it's probably true that we are seeing something similar, <laughs> you know, yeah. at the very yeah. least. In that sense, our interpretation of the world symbolically, our understanding of it, our fears, will relate not unsimilarly to, to similar mythology, similar patterns, so that they, so that the stories of the ancient Greeks, of myths told through time, are going to be not unsimilar to the latest... Uh, blockbuster on netflix 
you know, these they're going to have as you are, they're going to have structures and heroes and villains and helpers, and they're going to explore un underlyingly dark forces of of fear and suspicion that you know. For instance, that film, The Purge, or The Purge film. Oh, yeah, yeah. The film The film, Purge yeah. are simply a proposition, and it's, it's, I don't think it's a proposition that's particularly true. But it is if you took away the restraining forces of society, we'd all set upon each other like wild ravening animals if we were given the chance. That, I'm sure I'm certain that isn't true, but it's certainly a suspicion we all have. And it's certainly been it's certainly been appreciated in time that there are moments when quite ordinary people can do really awful things. It, it's happened, John, but it wasn't. Uh, we didn't run around killing each other. We went for the toilet rolls, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Got those instead on a, on a purge. My, my dad told me a story once, of, this is true, this is him in World War II, how he was in World, was in World War II and it was in that bit of um, North Africa where they, the Germans are retreating quite quickly. And so they were moving from camp to camp quite fast. And they arrived at a camp and they, they set up their tents and such like, but two soldiers among their company had been badly injured and died while they were there. So they buried them in shallow graves, marked the graves. And what the idea was that if those men never were found, they at least had a burial. And if they were, later on, people following behind would disinter them and take them off to a war grave. So they mark their graves, they say a few words, and they all get in their truck again and they're off. And as they're leaving the camp, two ragged Algerian, Tunisian, Arab men run forward and start digging at the sand in order to get their boots or their belts or whatever it is they can trade because they're absolutely starving, these people, and they can trade or wear or whatever. You know, there was these, these, these Westerners had buried these men in their clothes and boots and belts and they were valuable. So they start digging at them and the last truck as it's leaving, they see this. The guys ran forward to the graves too quickly in a way because the, the, the sergeant on the truck shouts, stop! And they stop the truck, he gets out, walks up the path back to the camp, pulls out his revolver and shoots them both in the head. And I thought, well, that, wow. if, that, if that guy survived the war, and he's a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, or whoever he is. What does he say when someone says, well, Harold, how was the war for you? <laughs> what did you do in North Africa? What does he say? Oh dear, yeah, yeah. Did he ever talk about that? Who were, you know, or to say, well, you know, there's a bit this, bit of that, you know, you did what you did. Oh dear, yeah. I doubt he's a psychopath. He's probably never going to kill anyone again. Maybe he never did anything like that again in the whole rest of the war. Wow, yeah. Is there one thing I was going to ask earlier, I didn't have a chance, but a lot of these accounts of psychoanalysis and everything, they want to kind of, you know, move away from guilt, uh, you know, and even in our modern world, we never, we, we've lost a relationship with guilt. I think about that story you've just said, does the guy feel guilty or, you know, we're always told, I mean, we, we live in this age where we're not really responsible for, for things or ourselves. And if you're responsible, you've got to feel guilty sometimes so sometimes does guilt have a good effect on on the human psyche or not well there's a there's a question for us about that story if you met this guy would you say well you know you you should atone for that you should feel guilty or would you say mm. well you're as much a victim of this situation as, as the well that's, that's why i asked the question <laughs> if we if, if we if we say that you're a victim 
then no one can be ever responsible with him. We, we remain as children throughout our lives. What I'm, I'm saying badly, that guilt is, has got a bad press at the moment, but is it an, a necessary regulator of the human psyche? But wouldn't, wouldn't Jung say that replace the word guilt with the shadow? Yeah. He's actually sort of coming to terms with that. So you wouldn't say to this man, you, you're, not, you're not the victim of that situation, but you do have to understand what that was about you. There's some, there's some kind of recognition. Yeah. That, what, that's probably what a Jungian analyst would say to this guy, should you ever turn up on a couch and recount? Well, how far would you go? Yeah. You, know, you, 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 would, you, you were capable of much worse than you think. Yeah. I think perhaps that would be like... I'm going to make the connection there with conspiracy theories, because if you believe that's true, and there's a suspicion, probably exaggerated by films like The Purge, but there's a suspicion that human beings, and indeed we, who knows, we suspect this about ourselves, are capable of appalling things, then it's yeah. possible then to believe all sorts of strange and terrible things about the world, yeah. uh, such as there's uh, an, international, an international network of paedophiles. I, I don't know if psychologically human beings have been so impacted now with constant imagery, just images on phones, that it's having or on screens all the time. How much someone in this period now has an imagination the sheer amount of screens and images and, and things that you see that aren't really there anyway it's already there mm -hmm. for you if you like the imagination is virtualized and yeah. given back to you so you don't have to it's almost like canned laughter it laughs for you and the yeah. screen gives you the images for you now that it, think how different life would have been then i was trying to explain to the kids the other day what was life was like before the internet phones you know i went and saw my mates after school it was like you, know, you might make a phone call you just go in and knocked on somebody and you saw them you saw them if they weren't in mum would say you know no he's not in although mm. although the other day when i was listening to the t television they said something like um well next week we'll all be free to go out and shop <laughs> i thought oh yeah yeah that's what freedom is <laughs> <laughs>